strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, a report out from the NFL Players Association about how the players feel about their treatment with the teams around the NFL. The Cardinals came in 31st out of 32 teams. Joining me in studio, Dan Bickley from Arizona Sports. Dan, thanks for doing this again. Oh, my pleasure, Mike. Yeah, listen, I'm a father of a 13-year-old. I'm well familiarized with bad report cards. So (laughs) Cardinals just got a really bad report card, Mike. What do you think of – so you and I you and I have talked about this before, and mm-hmm. my history with the Cardinals is as a casual fan, but you've been covering this for years. When um, when Michael Bidwell's father was the head of the team, there were a lot of complaints about the way they ran that more like a business than they did an NFL team. Very miserly. Yeah. Very cheap. Very good yeah. in the community. He was a very philanthropic person oh, yeah. as far very as the team dude. and the product mm-hmm. on the field. But when, when his son, when Michael Bidwell took over, he made some promises about fielding a win about getting a statement and for a long time <clears throat> seemed to keep that promise. Is there a regression here? Uh, that's what, uh, again, that's what a lot of people fear. That that uh, Because when when the Cardinals' fortunes change for the better, we I think people forget how dramatic it was and how bad they used to be under Bill Bidwell. For somebody who covered every home game from 1998 and every game from 1998 on, I, I can second what you're saying. There was a time when the NFL was comparing of 31 teams trying to win and then there was the Arizona Cardinals and they were the outlier and at times it didn't even seem like they were attempting to be in the same game as 31 other teams. It was a very hopeless feeling. That all changed with Michael Bidwell and the the stadium and as you pointed out, with the stadium came the promise that this will give us the revenue to be competitive and so we've we've seen that manifest itself and it, it led to a couple of good eras of Cardinal football but now people are trying to make sense of what we're witnessing in the here and now. Here is my takeaway from this thing. I think that this is a another embarrassing perceptual slap in the face for the team. I, I think it's a, a, another reminder to Michael Bidwill that you need to focus on this football team and spend money on this team and, and get out of the Super Bowl uh, business for a while and, and pay attention to some of this. And I do think that maybe putting money into your facilities is something that you probably need to do at this point in time. I'll tell you this. The Cardinals are in a, a very old school facility. It's the same facility they've had ever since I've been in town. I kind of dig it. I kind of dig the old school approach of it all. Yet when we watched during Hard Knocks, we noticed and viewers noticed that Cliff Kingsbury would have team meetings in the same auditorium that that the, the club would have press conferences. And in today's day and age, that seems absurd. Most NFL teams have beautiful, sprawling complexes with all everything. And and I suppose Michael Bidwell could go down that path. He could go down to city leaders in Tempe and, 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 and whatnot and do what Robert Sarver did and say, listen, you're going to partner with me and help me get a brand new facility because I need it to compete. He hasn't done that yet. So, 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 so maybe there's some benefit to, to having an old school thing like this. But what I think they've got now is they've got a perception problem. I think people look at the Cardinals and go, okay, there are substandard facilities there. Not so much the people or the commitment to winning, but the facilities. And you know this as a big fan of football. There's an arms race in college football now. If you go and you look at what like Clemson has and what Alabama has and what Florida State has, it would blow your mind the resources they allocate to recruit football players. Well, in the NFL, you've got to recruit football players as well through 
free agency, which is about to begin here for the Cardinals. And this report, you have to keep in mind, this is not this is these are not the opinions of basement bloggers. These are thirteen hundred NFLPA members who have put their voices yeah. anonymously to this. So I, I I think what this tells you is. Across the league, if you want to attract free agents in the future, this is something you better be uh, cognizant of. Um, I was not necessarily a scholar in high school either, but I never got an F minus. Yeah, <laughs> and the right. Cardinals got three of them three in this report them. card. They got an F minus in food service and nutrition, their weight room, and their training room. They got mm-hmm. an F in locker room and an F in the treatment of families. Yes, and okay. So, and then if you do research on this, because and that sounds absolutely horrible. How can you get an F in treatment of families. If you go back and you read the report, the report says these are things that the Cardinals don't have, like they don't have daycare facilities set up. They don't have nice enough accommodations for families at the facilities. Now, as a football fan, are you going to get worked up about that? I personally am not, and I hold the Cardinals accountable probably more than anybody in this town. You do, but I'm not going to get. I'm not going to get. I'm not going to get um, all uh, out of out of sorts based on the fact they don't have a daycare facility set up for players. Now, if you're a free agent single dad from Buffalo and you come to Arizona and they don't have one, that might make a difference to you. So, so you see what I'm saying here. So all these F's they look really, really bad, but I think the details vary. Like the F they get for. For um, families or whatever the yeah treatment of families, I think that looks a lot worse on paper than it actually is. But when you get to something like charging players for meals, that's a bad look. That's something that's getting too close to the old Cardinals. Isn't it a true story? Tell me, this is what I have heard from the old Cardinals: is that when players would give away jerseys or footballs, they had to pay for them. Yes, and, but the the jerseys giving away that was not unique to the Cardinals. That was, believe it or not, that was in. Industry wide, which see even today when guys trade their jerseys after games, they get dinged for them. They have to pay for them. So that's not just a cardinal thing, but there are stories like locks on the Gatorade cooler, yeah, right, having to pay for an extra T-shirt or extra T-shirts, yes. stuff like that. There are a lot of stories of that kind of stuff, and and that's why this kind of report bothers people because it's way too close to that past. Is it something though because of the players and how they talk with each other when you're trying to get someone to come? And join a team. Is this something that could be fairly easily rectified if they make an effort and say, "Hey, man, this is a wake up call"? But these are the changes we're making. Yeah. I, yes. I, I think. I think the answer to that is yes. I think what you can do is like I've I've heard people like, for instance, some of the some of the complaints that have come across me. The quality of chairs in the locker room is that a big deal? Well, when you're a football player and you go to some of these Taj Mahals, you go, "Wow, they have this. We don't have that." It, it, it makes you envious. It makes you speak poorly of your employer. But does the quality of chair really qualify as an indictment of your organization? I, I, I don't know where where I fall on, on all of this in some, but I do know that some of this stuff you need, the Cardinals need to pay attention to. Yes, and you could probably do it. Like if the complaints are that, that the, the floor in the weight room is substandard, that, that it looks old or, or it's splintering in play, you can fix that. Or sure. You can fix that in a week. Weekend. And compared with the money that is in the NFL and is spent on players, it is 
to you and I would be a big expense, but to them, that's a minimal expense for a big return. Right, right. And, and I think, and again, I get back to the Super Bowl because in interviews with Michael Bidwell and even had one with us, he, he mentions the, the, the figure $200 million as money that had to be poured into the Super Bowl. And he has talked um, explicitly about the travails of having to hire a GM, a head coach, and hosting a Super Bowl at the same time. Clearly, hosting a Super Bowl brings a lot to the region, brings a lot of money, drives a lot of profit, uh, creates a lot of new businesses. Michael is very, very proud of the recruiting businesses approach to sure. hosting a Super Bowl, as he should be. But again, I think at this point in time, everything has got to be now really uber focused on this football team. I love the insight always, man, and your short notice willingness to jump oh, in here. Always, I appreciate man. You're it. the best, Michael. All right, man. That's Dan Bickley from Arizona Sports. I appreciate the time with him. Uh, coming up in a moment, we're going to talk about uh, the expense at the border and one hospital that's going absolutely broke. It's coming up in a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much. Appreciate you spending some time with us. Uh, We talk about the law enforcement side and the costs at the border, what it's doing with local law enforcement. We've talked about the food banks. But there has been a very serious conversation about the Yuma Regional Medical Center, the area of that part of the state, if you've not been down there. It's not very wealthy, um, but the hospitals there are so necessary. There's not another hospital around. It's like 80 miles, 180 miles. There's not another facility like it. So it is one of those absolute necessities for medical care. Um, Our own Taylor Tassler wrote a great piece. It is up at KTAR.com. Arizona Hospital out more than $26 after providing medical care to migrant patients. Um, Whatever the real dollar amount is here, they're saying now overall it's going to be more than $26 million. But this huge expense, and a lot of it has to do with women crossing the border that are pregnant, that have never had any prenatal care. So they're in desperate need of prenatal care. And then when they get into the hospital and they have their baby, the babies are being born ill because they didn't get prenatal care. Now, there is a segment of American society that would say this is why we turn people around and we send them back. Separate conversation, which I I would love to have. I think it's a valuable conversation. But the way it is now in our country, the way we do things here now, and I think it's an American principle, is that we take care of people, that we um, we don't turn people away from a hospital because they can't pay. If you have an emergency, you're going to get your emergency care. Um, the problem here is recovering of those funds is almost impossible. This is where we need a big push from our governor. And her relationship with Alejandro Mayorkas, um, who is the uh, director of Homeland Security, uh, along with the White House and any inroads that she has because she is in the same political party as the president. We need um, Senator Kelly, who is a Democrat, a former Democrat and independent, and Senator Sinema, who was raised in southern Arizona and has been pretty a pretty big champion for border security. But what this is about now is about making sure that that medical center can continue to give the valuable care the best care necessary to the people in that region that are American citizens. Um, You have to take care of your own. I will say to you that I am someone that believes in being a good human being whenever you can. I fail miserably a lot. But if you've got a woman that's pregnant and about to have a child, all of you people out there that are pro-life, and I'm one of them, it's a human life. It's not that baby's fault. 
that we have horrible policies. It's not that child's fault that this woman is in a situation that she's not able to get prenatal care. And I will say to you that, you know, the sense of responsibility from someone that goes into the medical field is immense. They look at this and they say, this is exactly why I got into this field is to save lives, preserve lives, improve the quality of life, uh, to take, you know, give people good health care. But to find out that because of the policies of this administration, and there's a direct correlation to this, um, the policies of this administration has made this uh, this problem bigger than it's ever been before. And now they're washing their hands of it. And at this point, they're, they're giving no relief. Makes no sense. None whatsoever. I asked Taylor Tassler this morning. She was on with me. How, how uh, much debt is this hospital in? The hospital is $26 million in the hole from providing health care to my and it's much more than $26 million. Um, it's because they're providing hotel rooms, transportation, food, uh, diapers. Um, so it's more than that, but that's just the medical care. So can they recover any of this? That's part of it is what's the conversation about how can they get some of this money back? At the moment, um, from my conversation with Dr. Trenchell, there isn't. Um, he has talked to both the U.S. senators. I asked him if he's had any direct conversations with the Biden administration. He said he hasn't and those conversations will happen through the senators but necessarily he told me you know everyone is willing to listen and be sympathetic about it but there really isn't a solution he's tried to go through medicare and they say sorry these people are in transit you can try to track them down at the state that they end up in but it isn't an option at the moment yeah and how is it affecting them because what is it doing to their ability to provide quality care now to the people that live in the area and he told me what it's really affecting is you know they can't maybe upgrade their equipment or they can't hire more staff um, that's where this money's coming from so it's directly affecting the hospital and its operations as well so, you know, as we bicker and argue politically back and forth with the firebombs of politics, the real people that are affected from the southern part of the border or the southern side of the border that are crossing into our country and for the people that live in this region, it's severe. It's real life. It doesn't matter if it's Republican or Democrat. It just remember it matters that it's right or wrong. And so this is a problem that needs to be addressed. I'm glad it's coming to light. I'm glad that the head of the hospital was able to speak at the same congressional hearings where law enforcement spoke. I hope their voices were heard. I hope America understands as much as now Mayor Adams in New York City understands the immense expense and strain it puts on a system in his city. Can you imagine what it's doing here in the state of Arizona? And I hope this is something that gets fixed relatively quickly. Um, in a moment, Florida sees an increase in law enforcement recruits, while other agencies, including here in Arizona, they're dramatically understaffed. We're going to talk about the difference next. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate you spending some time. Interesting story. Florida sees a surge in law enforcement, but um, 
law enforcement recruits, but the rest of the country is suffering and they are uh, understaffed, which I think is very interesting. And part of the issue is the emphasis that Florida has put on uh, law enforcement. The governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, went across the country speaking in major cities and telling law enforcement officials and law enforcement uh, associations, hey, listen, if you don't feel like you're being treated fairly in your city, if you don't think you're appreciated by the governor of your state, but especially the cities and towns that run your agencies, uh, we've always got an opening in Florida. Come to us. We've got great weather. Um, there is no state income tax. It's a better quality of life. The, it is lower cost of living, and we'd love to have you. And what that has resulted in Again, I talk so much about intentional growth, intentional, intentional, intentional. With this intentional behavior, they are seeing a a bunch of recruits. Now, outside of the politics of it, and I can tell you that my brother, uh, who is a cop, he's a captain in the sheriff's office, and his wife, who is a deputy, um, they are two of the most apolitical people. It's one of the reasons why I love going home. When I go home, we don't talk about politics at all. We talk sports. We talk family. I go and watch my nephew play basketball, and I love going to watch him play high school basketball. I catch up with my old friends. Most of my friends are apolitical. So this isn't a political statement, but when you have an emphasis on whatever it is you do and that leadership focuses on what you do, um, it makes you feel better about things. When you feel as if you are a valued part of something, it makes you feel better about the job you're doing. And in Florida, there is a focus in saying, hey, listen, we understand that there has been a massive movement across this country in the last few years of defunding the police. And part of that is the accusation and belief system that there is a systemic problem in policing that is overtly racist and that it is overtly violent against people of color. And if you know we don't necessarily believe that in Florida, we're going to weed out the bad apples, but we want you here. If you're a law enforcement officer, you're proud of that career, we want you. And uh, I will tell you that, that that resonates with people. And it doesn't matter. It's interesting. If you look at the diversity in a law enforcement agency, look here in Arizona. You look at the diversity of law enforcement in Arizona. There are white officers and black officers and Hispanic officers and Asian officers and men and women and gay and straight and it is as diverse as the community around us and so to you know to say that the color of someone's skin matters it doesn't now i will say to you when people in neighborhoods say listen when the cops are here it's usually to arrest somebody they're angry when they're here they're on edge they treat us differently they talk down to us if if a community feels as if they're being mistreated by their police department that is that's horrible it really is and it should be rectified. You can't rectify it with fewer police officers. You can't. It's showing itself to not be possible. As a matter of fact, you need more officers so that they can be trained. I've taught how many times, and you know it makes sense. Everyone out there, if we want the same thing, if all of us want to be proud of the law enforcement agencies in the towns where we live, cities where we live, states where we live, they've got to be fully funded They've got to be well-equipped, and they've got to be well-trained. 
The only way you can train a police officer properly and giving them continuing education and training is being able to have the time to pull them out of service, whatever that service is for them, to allow for that ongoing training. And the ideal situation, the ideal way of doing that is not pulling officers out one at a time, but pulling officers out squads at a time. So whether it's um, making a dangerous entry training, um, a, a, a felony arrest training, a car chase training, using a pit maneuver, pick the different training that they do, whether it is um, de-escalation. The ideal way to do that is with the people that work together every day. You can't do that under current circumstances in Phoenix, and I would imagine it's that way in other agencies around the state of Arizona. So when Florida has made, again, this intentional effort, they're being successful. Um, The president vows to ban assault weapons come hell or high water. And the idea that that's going to solve a problem or put a dent in a problem is absurd. And we can continue to have this argument, and I don't care. This is one of those areas I don't care what you say about me because I I know what the truth is. The NRA is not the enemy. The NRA actually is a safety organization, and I'm not an NRA – I mean I'm an NRA member. I'm not someone that works for the NRA. I have no benefit in this. Um, But we want better training. We want people that own guns to be better trained and more aware and and safer. Well, who do you think does that training? Who do you think are the ones that write that curriculum and they train the trainers? It's the National Rifle Association. That's what the NRA does. And because they lobby in favor of the Second Amendment, they're the most reviled organization I, I know of. It's crazy. It's crazy that it's that way. And when I look at all of this as a whole, I say to you, I want these things to stop. And this is where the fight starts because automatically, because I don't believe that banning a certain type of firearm is the solution to the problem. I care more about my guns than I do dead children. It's an absurd idea. And if that's where it starts, I'm not even going to begin the conversation. We all want safer streets. We all want to live in a place where our children are out on their bikes and we don't have to worry about anything other than them hurting themselves by being dumb kids. We don't want to see our children preyed upon. We've got to make sure we've got police officers on the street. We have to make sure that we've got prosecutors in the offices that are vigorously and aggressively prosecuting these cases. Criminals have to be on notice in the towns where we live that if you break the law in this town, especially if it is a violent crime or a crime against another person specifically, you're going to pay a heavy price. Send that message and it fixes a lot of the problems. Coming up in just a moment, Maricopa County wants to put scanners in the jails for employees, including detention officers, because of the problem of fentanyl and other very dangerous drugs. We're going to talk about that coming up here in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Appreciate you spending some time with us this morning. Sheriff Paul Penzone joined me this morning. Um, he talked to the uh, County Board of Supervisors. He spoke to the public as well. Recently, what we've seen, an uptick of contraband. And we know the contraband gets into the jails. And I would all go as further, and I would say into our prisons, two separate entities, um, into those systems. And unfortunately, contraband does make its way in. Unfortunately as well, and I think even more unfortunately, many times, or at least occasionally, it's done by people that work in the jails themselves. And 
here is a, a situation where now it's turned more deadly than ever before. How often uh, members of the sheriff's department and their uh, detention officers are having to employ Narcan to save lives of inmates who come in and overdose. Uh, employees coming in contact with uh, drugs like fentanyl, just having contact with something like fentanyl is causing severe injuries um, and, and people are overdosing. There was a recent story, uh, a video is actually out, and I believe it was in Florida that it happened, um, where an officer, she was on a scene and she came in contact with fentanyl in full uniform. She's got a body camera on. She's uh, a bulletproof vest in full uniform and overdosed because she came in contact with fentanyl. They had to give her two doses of Narcan to bring her back. Well, in the jails, we've heard of inmates overdosing. Deaths have happened. Severe injury has happened. Officers have been uh, affected by this. And even when they're not coming in contact with the drug fentanyl. We are seeing, uh, unfortunately, that having to deal with people on some of these drugs makes it much more difficult for detention officers. Well, recently, um, a detention officer was – and I'm going to say allegedly only because he hasn't gone to trial. Allegedly, he has been accused of trying to bring contraband, specifically drugs, into the jail, and uh, he was arrested, and so the the sheriff – said we are going to implement scanners for employees as well, not just inmates, not just attorneys, not just visitors, but for employees as well. So I asked him about this program and what's the basics of it. Now, fundamentally, just any entry point into the jail, uh, we want to make sure that everybody is being screened. We want to make sure we do everything possible to make it a drug-free, contraband-free, excuse me, contraband-free jail to keep inmates safe, to keep our detention officers safe. And we also have medical staff and other visitors. So I have the responsibility to do everything within my you know, capabilities to, to mitigate those threats. And that's what this is, a significant step in that direction. So here is what the sheriff talked about, you know, because it, what it does is when you start saying to detention officers, when you start talking to law enforcement officers and you say to them, hey, listen, you're going to start and they're going to say, hey, we don't want to be treated like an inmate. We haven't done anything wrong. One bad apple doesn't necessarily mean we deserve this kind of treatment. And I asked him what he wants these employees to understand. Understand that we are doing two things. We're ensuring that the community trusts that we are deserving of this authority. And we're also doing everything possible to make sure that you go home safe at the end of the day. And that means also being responsible for the, the care and custody of inmates. So it is, you know, it's a process that's going to be streamlined. It's going to be, um, you know, a, a show of respect towards our employees when they go through this process. But it is a, a strong statement that as an organization, um, we are going to be transparent, we're going to be accountable, and we're going to do everything possible to, to make the environment safe. And so, and he did, you know, he was very candid about this because, again, law enforcement officers don't want to be treated like criminals because someone in their midst had done something wrong. But the sheriff sees this as such a dangerous prospect with fentanyl has changed everything about what they do. But he did say that the he, out of respect for the employees, they are not going to be going through the same scanners as the incarcerated people. We were very matter of fact in, in our commitment to make sure that we respect our employees. And, and that doesn't mean we mistreat inmates, but. They have their own, you know, space and place where they, they enter, where they secure things. Um, and the equipment that we selected was very specific because of the high volume of times they'll have to go through. We need to make sure we protect their health. And lastly, I talked to him about the cost. What's the upfront expense? What's the ongoing expense? We have cost savings in this year's budget, which means that because I'm coming in under budget, there are dollars already available that we can spend specifically for this. So it's not going to be additional taxpayer dollars. And I, and if I remember correctly, the cost for, I think we're purchasing seven scanners and, and we chose.
those those that were state of the art and that, that met our expectations. And I believe the cost is right around three million. And so it's an expensive proposition, but they believe one that will save lives and is necessary. We'll see how this all works out moving forward. But fentanyl has changed the way law enforcement works, even what they do with drug sniffing dogs, you know, coming in contact with this poison. It is a a very difficult proposition. You've heard you hear me talk about the recruiting push that they're doing at the sheriff's office for deputies, but also for detention officers. And it's it's an important job. Um, They are law enforcement officers inside the jails. You've heard me talk pretty often about my brother, who is a captain in the sheriff's office. My brother Tom, who perished in Iraq, before he was a soldier, he was a Marine from 90 to 94. And in the interim between the ending his career in the Marine Corps and starting his career in the Army, he worked as a corrections officer for the state of Arizona out at the special management unit in Florence. And he loved the job he was doing. He was doing a law enforcement job within the confines of the prison. Well, it's the same in the jail system. It's a law enforcement agency. And there are so many different um, areas of that and things you can do and being part of the criminal investigation division and things of that nature. So if they're going to put this big push on to recruit more and more people into the sheriff's office, the message it sounds like the sheriff is trying to put out there is you want to come to work for us. We're going to make sure your work environment is safe. We are going to dot the I's and cross the T's and we're going to do what we have to do to face this horrible drug and do what we can to keep our people safe from contact with the drug or having to be in contact with someone that's in jail that is overdosing or is violent or has had their behavioral changes so dramatically because of the drugs they're on. So this is seems to be the message from the sheriff. I was happy that he came on to talk about it. If you want to listen to any of our interviews, they're available on the podcast after the show, and I hope you'll go back and listen to this one. It was a pretty thoughtful interview with the sheriff, whether you agree with him or not. Uh, coming up in, in just after 11 o'clock, of course, we're going to do Did You Hear This? We always do that at 1120. We'll catch you up on the big major stories of the day. Julia does a great job hosting that. And then at a bit at 11 o'clock, we're going to talk about our economy. Great news about how resilient the Arizona economy is, that the Valley economy is one of the most resilient in the nation during the pandemic. What does that mean now post-pandemic and a recession? We'll talk about that next.